0: Well, hello, everybody. Good morning. morning. My name is Carolyn, and I am the Care and Counseling Director. And whether you are joining us online or in person, I am so happy that you're here. And I'm delighted to be sharing with you this morning. So um, since I don't do this all the time, I know that we just closed in prayer after worship. But I would ask you to join me in prayer before I begin. So let's pray. Father God, we just are so grateful to be in your presence this morning. We are grateful to learn about how much you care for us this morning, and so, Lord, I pray uh, that you, Holy Spirit, would be among us. We invite your presence here. We ask that you would pray, uh, that you would um, speak clearly, that it's not me, that it would be you, Lord. We know that your word is powerful and that it speaks on its own, and so we thank you for that. So anything that is not supposed to be shared today, remove it. Anything that needs to be added, would you add it? And we just thank you, Lord, for your powerful presence and your great love for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are in our second week of our Googling God series. And so what do you think the first thing that I did was? I went straight to Google, Google. thank you very much. Love participation from the audience. And out of curiosity, the first thing that I Googled was what is the weirdest questions that are asked of Google? And here's what I got. How many toes does a rhinoceros have? (laughs) Pretty weird, right? So, thank you. We have somebody who knew it. Last time, we did not. So we got somebody three, if you didn't hear. Three, three toes. All right, here's a couple of even stranger questions. Why is your face on your head? I think people were maybe tired when they asked that question. But keep in mind, this came up high on the search. So many people asked this question. Why does cucumber taste like shampoo? That has not been my experience. What is the length of spaghetti? Can helicopters fly upside down? Now, I don't know about you, but that one piqued my curiosity, so I actually clicked on it. And what I found out, if you want to know the answer to that, is that there are modern helicopters that can actually flip over. So although they can't fly upside down, they are momentarily upside down. So there's the answer to that question. You can check me if you'd like. Um, Another question, where are my keys? Don't you wish that Google could answer that one for you? And a famous uh, crowd pleaser, finally, who let the dogs out? (laughs) All right. The next question that I asked Google was, what were the most asked questions of 2023? And here's what I found out. What show or movie should I watch on TV? This was asked 7.5 million times every single month. Wow is right. That's a little sad that this is the focus of what people want to know. Um, What is my IP address was the second most popular question coming in at 3.6 million times monthly, followed by, if it's tax season, where is my refund? (laughs) Which I think we can all relate to, can't we? I mean, if it's been taking a little too long, where's my refund, how do I find out, right? Um, And then another most commonly asked question, and I want to know how many of you in the audience know this one, how many ounces are there in a cup? Yes, you guys are a smart crowd this morning. All right, the final question that I asked of Google was what are the top existential questions or questions relating to to the existence to our existence or to the existence of God? Is there a God? Is the first one. Is everything going to be okay? Who am I? Why is there evil in the world? And then what we're going to be talking about today, does God care? So I love what Tim said last week. He said, God invites us to ask these questions. And that is so true. He doesn't shut these questions down. He doesn't uh, like discourage us from wrestling these out. We actually have a story in scripture that is wrestling with God. He actually encourages us to do these things. He's big enough to answer them. And he's not bothered by them. He wants to be honest with us. He's not bothered by our frustrations or discouragement or the questions that we have. He wants us. He invites us to ask these questions. What I would say is that in our wrestling, when we take it to Google, Make sure that you bring those Google answers and compare them to what Scripture has to say and see if they match up. And that's what we're going to be doing today. So speaking of Scripture, before we jump into Scripture, I have a childhood story that I'd like to share with you. When I grew up, I was, I, we lived on a cul-de-sac, and there were only eight houses on this street. And my cousin, I had cousins who lived next door, cousins who lived across the street. And uh, as you can imagine, we ran this street. It was not a very big street to run, but we ran it. And so we would write with chalk on the street. We would build forts in the woods. We just ran all around that street. And the only thing that we had to do was come home by the time that we heard my dad's whistle. And it was a very distinctive whistle. It sounded like, woo whoop. And that's when we heard that, we knew it was either dinner time or time to run home. And so as soon as you heard it, it was like, start, start making your way home. And uh, one of the fa- my favorite things to do was to race our bicycles. And I lived on the top of a cul-de-sac. I lived in Connecticut, and we were on a pretty significant hill. So we would race these bicycles. So let me tell you a little bit about before these bicycle races that we would have. I want to tell you about my really special bicycle. It was fantastic. It was the bicycle to be envied. It was what every childhood girl probably asked for, is in my imagination anyway. This is what I thought. It was just a beauty. And it was called the Pink Huffy. Look at that beauty. That was a beauty. I think some, did you have it too? Melissa had it as well. So um, I had streamers at one point, but those streamers got ripped off, and you'll understand why in a few minutes. But this was the beauty that I had, and I was just so in love with this bicycle. There was only one problem with this bicycle. The chain down here didn't stay on when you hit certain speeds. And as you can notice, there was no brake system on the handlebars. The brake system was attached to this. So it was one of those ones that you pedal and then you came back that way. That was how you stopped the bike. Well, this was problematic when you were in a race, okay? So um, do you think that that problem. And what you should know, too, is that my father was not mechanically inclined. So this was a very, I'm sure all of you guys are thinking that that's an easy fix, right? I know that to be true now. Did not know that because my father was not mechanically inclined. So every time this happened, I would flip my bike over, you know, use the pedal, get that thing back on, flip the bike back over, and off I would go. No one fixed this problem for me. Didn't know it was an easy fix. Now I know it was an easy fix. So I would just going on this thing. So do you think that that stopped me from racing? No, it in fact did not. You guys are a very smart crowd. So as I mentioned earlier, we were on a hill, and it was a pretty significant hill. My cousins, friends, siblings, and I would line up, and my older sister would call out, one, two, three, go, and off we would tear. And when I was about halfway down the hill, my chain would fall off and I would hear it clunk and my my feet would start going faster and I would think, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And I would start looking for my exit strategy. How am I gonna stop this thing? And I would really know that I wasn't going to win the race anyway, so I needed to figure out how to stop my bike because if I got too far down the hill, there was a busy street followed by the barrier that led to I-84. So it was like, okay, figure this out and figure it out quickly. Well, this one particular race, I got way further down the hill than I typically got, and I was down to Mrs. Mosley's house, and I thought, okay, where do I go, where do I go? Mrs. Mosley's flower bed had rocks in front of it. So I thought, if I hit that, I'll come to a stop. So I hit Mrs. Oh, I think I'm telling you too much of the story. I was, oh no, I, I, I didn't want to tell you this much of the story. I hit her flower bed, and I went flying through the air, followed by my bicycle, and here I landed in her flower bed and tore part of it up. So I bet you're wondering, what in the world does this have to do with, does God care? Well, I assure you, it does. So hang in there tightly with me, because I'm going to get back to the rest of that story in a a little while, but don't forget about this bicycle story, okay? So now we're going to pick up in scripture, and we're going to go to the Old Testament, which is a part of scripture that was before Jesus was born. And we're going to be reading in the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible. We're going to be starting in chapter 16. But before I pick up where we're going to be, I want to give you a little bit of history before that part. And we're going to be talking about Abram and Sarai, which were later named Abraham, and Sarah, and they had been waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that they were gonna have a child. And Abraham was about 75 years old when he got this promise. And while waiting, which I don't know about you, but waiting can be difficult, right? This is what Sarah said. She had an idea and she says in 16 verse two, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant Perhaps I can have children through her. Hmm. So now this may sound like a radical concept to us. What in the world is going on here? First of all, we don't have maidservants in our modern day, in our our culture, but we need to understand a little bit more about what's taking place to really understand the fullness of, of what's going on. In that culture, to be barren or unable to bear children was a social stigma, you were, would be unable to pass on your family line, okay? And also, oftentimes, men had more than one wife. So if one of your wives was unable to bear children, what was her worth, right? And this is what Sarah was at. She could not provide this for her husband. And so keeping that in mind, I want to tell you too, as they were waiting 10 years since the promise that God had given Abraham had already passed. So we're not just saying like a week or two or a couple months had gone by since Sarah had been waiting. 10 years had gone by. And so let's think about what that might've meant for Sarah. Sarah, the enemy may have been speaking to to Sarah, whispering some lies. Scripture doesn't tell us that, but we might be able to take some creative license here and wondering what what lies might Sarah have been falling prey to. And they might've sounded like this and see if you can relate to some of these. God spoke to Abraham and promised him. Are you sure that that promise included you too? Maybe God doesn't love you as much as he loves Abraham. Do you really think that this can happen for you at your age? I mean, are you kidding me? What are you waiting for? Why don't you take matters into your own hands? I mean, surely what God meant was fill in the blank. And the justification process began and a new plan was hatched. And in this new plan, there was an unwillingness to continue to wait for God's timing. Sarah gives her maidservant Hagar to Abraham and Hagar conceives. And scripture also says that when she conceived, Sarah's maidservant Hagar began to despise Sarah. That's the word that's used, despise, pretty strong language. And Sarah get, becomes mad at Abraham. Listen to how the story get, becomes even more dramatic. She get, becomes mad at Abraham and she says, You are responsible for the wrong that I am suffering. Can you imagine? That's convenient, right? Feels a little bit like a soap opera. And so, to which Abraham tells Sarah, Do whatever you think is best. And so here's where we pick up in the scripture to find out whatever Sarah thought was best. In chapter 16, verses 6 through 13, this is what it says Then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road to Shur. The angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? "'I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai,' she replied. The angel of the Lord said to her, "'Return to your mistress and submit to her authority.' Then he added, "'I will give you more descendants than you can count.' And the angel also said, "'You are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. "'You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears, "'for the Lord has heard your cry of distress. "'This son of yours will be a wild man, "'as untamed as a wild donkey,' He will raise his fist against everyone, and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against all his relatives. Thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. Listen to what she says. She says, you are the God who sees me. She also said, have I truly seen the one who sees me? A caring God is one who sees us and hears us. Now, to fully understand the beauty of this passage, we need to dig a little bit deeper. The angel of the Lord, in the original language, was said "Malak Yahweh," two words next to each other, and this can be interpreted a couple of different ways. And biblical scholars don't always agree on the way that this is interpreted. But if you uh, saw, if you interpret it as the angel of the Lord meaning an angel from the Lord or being just a messenger. Typically in scripture, you'd only see the word malach there. You wouldn't see it paired with Yahweh. So the other interpretation is that the angel of the Lord is what's called a Christophany. And what that is is an appearance of Jesus before his physical birth seen in the Old Testament. And this is what William MacDonald says about this passage. Wait for it, okay, here it is. While Hagar was in the desert, Sure, on the way to Egypt, the angel of the Lord came to her. This is the Lord Jesus in one of his pre-incarnate appearances known as a Christophany. And another biblical scholar named David Guzik says this, seemingly the angel of the Lord was a physical presence who spoke with Hagar as one person speaks to another. We don't have the sense that this was a mere spiritual impression or a voice in the wind, there was a person physically present with Hagar, and that person was the angel of the Lord. Later in the text, it shows that Hagar understood that this physically present person was God himself. When God himself is physically present, we understand that it is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And as if this isn't incredible enough, this is the first Christophany that we see in scripture. And usually when the first things happen in scripture, we're supposed to Pay attention to them. And so let's pay attention to who the first Christophany, the first pre-incarnate appearance of Christ was. It happened to an Egyptian maidservant who was unmarried and pregnant. She's not an Israelite. She's clearly not a man. She really had no knowledge of God other than what she had gleaned from Abraham and Sarah. And yet he makes himself known to her. He has compassion on her. He speaks to her, he sees her, and her response is, you are the God who sees me. And we know that it can't be God the Father, because when Moses was speaking to the Father, he asked him to show him his glory. And God told Moses, you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live. Yet in all of these things, God still shows his caring nature by his interactions. Again, he sees, he hears, he speaks, he engages with us. So I ask you and I ask myself, how are you engaging with him? What are you doing daily to engage with the God who sees you and who hears you? He surely wants to spend time with you and as is evidenced in that story that we just talked about, he has no prejudices and he, ha- and he shows no favoritism. He loves us so much that when he sees us and when he hears us, he wants to engage with us. It's an amazing thought. Now, another story in the Old Testament is Moses leading God's people out of Egypt into the promised land. And in this story, God uses Moses to talk to Pharaoh and ask him to let Moses and God's people go and leave Egypt after they had been enslaved for 430 years. As Pharaoh keeps denying this request, God sends 10 plagues that ultimately lead to the deliverance of God's people through the crossing of the Red Sea into the desert where they roam for 40 years before they cross over the Jordan River into the promised land. And here is, we're coming to the end of Moses's life and in Deuteronomy 31 verses one through three and verse six, this is what Moses says. When Moses had finished giving these instructions to all the people of Israel, he said, I am now 120 years old. I am no longer able to lead you. The Lord has told me you will not cross the Jordan River, but the Lord, your God himself will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy the nations living there, and you will take possession of their land. Joshua will lead you across the river, just as the Lord promised. So be strong and courageous, do not be afraid, and do not panic before them, for the Lord your God will personally go ahead of you. He will neither fail you nor abandon you. And in the NIV, it says, he will neither never leave you nor forsake you. So in Hebrews 13.5, it quotes from that Deuteronomy passage, and this is what it says. It says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And if we fast forward to when Jesus, right before Jesus left the earth, he promised the Holy Spirit. And this is what he says in John 14.16, I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. Again, beautiful pictures. So in these passages, we see a God who cares is a God who never leaves us and never forsakes us. In the passage from Deuteronomy, Moses is speaking of God's presence being with them in battle and in the passage of Hebrews that refers back to that passage in Deuteronomy, The author is talking about not becoming materialistic or overly concerned about money because, and learn to be content with what you have because God will never leave you nor forsake you. So whether we are in battle legitimately, and there are wars going on in the world right now, right? Whether we have wars in our families, whether we have wars going on in our mind, whether we have wars going on with us physically, whether we're worried about our bills, whether we're overly concerned about keeping up with the latest or greatest, all of these things are addressed in scripture. And what are we told? He will never leave us and never forsake us. That all sounds great in theory, right? But what does that really look like? So I have heard these passages quoted to me throughout my whole entire life, but when life threw me a couple of major curveballs, these verses came to life for me, and I wanna share a couple of those with you. Some of you know uh, a couple of these stories, so please be patient with me if you already know them, but I'm gonna share them. So January 1st, 2015, uh, we got a call and it was New Year's. So we got a call every year from my parents on New Year's. And so this is what I thought it was. It was my mom calling and John picked up the phone first and says, oh, happy New Year's, mom. He's on the phone just briefly, hands the phone over to me. And I say, hey, happy, happy New Year's, mom. Happy New Year's. Yeah. Her, phone, her voice gets low real quick. Hey, care. Something funny is going on with Dad. Uh, so let me, let me just be real quick. He's out with the dog, let me ask you a few questions. Okay, go ahead, Mom. She starts asking me a few questions. I said, Mom, you gotta, you gotta take Dad to the hospital. Just You need to take him to the hospital and get him checked out. Okay, so she does that. A couple of hours later I get a text saying Dad has a big tumor in his brain and, uh, and it doesn't look good. They're gonna send him to a different hospital. Okay, that night my sisters and I took a flight to Florida from Connecticut to Florida and to be with my mom and and my dad 2 days later had brain surgery and I was laying on the couch at my mother's house that night overwhelmed with the peace of God remembering how faithful he has been my father had been driving around with this big tumor in his brain hadn't had a seizure He always drove, both of my parents, hadn't gotten in a car accident, hadn't hurt himself or my mother or anybody else on the road. God had been so faithful, and I was just filled with gratitude and praise as I was thinking about how faithful God had been. He had never left them, never forsaken them. He was with us. We were able to get down there in time to be with them. So now fast forward two and a half years after my father's death, my son gets diagnosed with cancer. And as John and I are in the doctor's office getting this news of my son's cancer, which, which had two different tumors side by side, which were two different types of tumors, which was rare, and I'm sitting there looking at this thinking, trying to make sense of it all. What came to mind was the fact that when he was born, he had something that was called a true knot in his umbilical cord. And the doctor held it up and said, oh, my word, I haven't seen one of these in 10 years. Do you know what this is? And I looked at it because I had read about it, and I just went, oh yeah, that's a true knot," not knowing the implication of what that was. So she said, he's lucky to be alive. And I knew that at that moment, God's hand was on my son's life. God had protected him, God had preserved him, God had been with him, even when I didn't even know. And that the statistics are 0.4 to 1% of children are born with this, like come to full, full term. So I thought, okay, Lord, he's not mine. He's yours. Like, what is going on here? So now 20 years later, he's diagnosed with cancer. And I say, God has never left him or forsaken him. Again, God has never left him or forsaken him. God knows the beginning from the end of his days. And I can tell you that he's, he's doing fine and he's well now. Praise God for that. Thank you. Thank you. So, and I, and I don't want to just say that God's only with us in the biggies. I gave you some big examples there. But God is with us in the mundane. He's with us when we're changing our kids' diapers. He's with us when we're making dinner and they're hanging off our legs. He's with us when we're at work and we're dealing with you know, frustrating coworkers. He's with us all the time. He promises to never leave us or forsake us. What a thought that the God of the universe is with us personally. So I ask you, what are you going through personally right now that Jesus is walking you through. If you have not pictured him with you, I encourage you to do that. So one quick question. Do you guys remember the bicycle story? You do, okay, we're almost there, but I just wanna talk about one more attribute of God and we're gonna talk about his mercy before we get to the bicycle story, okay? So mercy is defined as this. Mercy is compassionate or kindly forbearance shown toward an offender, an enemy, or other person in one's power. It's also defined as compassion, pity, or benevolence. And Micah 7, 18 through 19 says this, and listen to this word picture. Where is another God like you who pardons the guilt of the remnant, overlooking the sins of his people? You will not stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing unfailing love. That word is also used as mercy in the NIV. Once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. So take a minute with me and just picture this, the pardoning of the guilty offender. How about if that guilty offender were were you or were me, knowing that even the smallest sin offends a perfect and holy God. Yet the scripture doesn't say that he, he, it says that he not only pardons it, he doesn't stay angry forever, but he delights in showing us love and mercy. And he has compassion on us. And he doesn't trample on us. He tramples on our sin. And then that trampled sin, he picks up and chucks it into the depths of the ocean. How beautiful is that? And that picture is pointing to what Jesus accomplished on the cross. It's amazing. That's how much Jesus loves us and cares for us. James two thirteen says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Think about that for a second. It's amazing. Romans 8, 1 says, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. A caring God is a God who desires mercy over judgment. So now I wanna explain to you how my bicycle story ties in. Again, I think I left you with me flying through the air with my bicycle following behind me, landing in Mrs. Mosley's garden, tearing it up, right? So you you see, I, uh, I was immediately panicked when I landed in her garden. I was freaking out, quite frankly. I thought, I am in serious trouble. And I made assumptions. I assumed that she was gonna be angry at me. I assumed she might even be livid at this new state of her flower bed or lack thereof. Um, she had every right to. She had every right to. How many times had she seen me tearing down that street making poor choices? How many times did she see that I had to go flying off into the, you know, somebody else's yard and think, how, how many times is she gonna do this? I mean, come on, this is ridiculous. And this time, it ended up where I tore up her flower bed. So I made a lot of assumptions about what, was, what, was she, what her reaction was going to be. She had every right to be mad, but she didn't do that. She came running out of her house. So you see, she had known me since I was four years old, and I was friends with her children, and she was a kind-hearted woman. She saw me flying through the air, and I'm sure she heard me screaming as I was doing it. She ran outside to me, she got down low, and she held me there while I was trying to get up. And she said, are you okay, honey? Are you sure you're not hurt? She said it with the kindest voice, the most tender eyes. She had seen me, she had heard me, she came to be with me, and she desired to offer me mercy over judgment. She was a beautiful in-person representation of the love of Christ in a moment when I had made assumptions about how she was going to respond to my poor choice, and she didn't respond that way at all. So before I close, I want to share a story out of scripture, and I'm going to paraphrase it because I'm going to tell the story, so I want to encourage you to read it on your own. It's from John 8, verses 3 through 11. So, I'm just going to tell it as a story, but go back and read it for yourself. And this story is when Jesus has religious leaders um, and Pharisees, they take a woman caught in adultery. And interestingly enough, the man that she was caught sinning with is not brought out with her. But she's brought out to Jesus, and there's a whole crowd of people there, and, and is told this woman was caught in adultery. What do you say that we should do? The law says that we should stone her. And so Jesus bends down and it says, and he writes in the sand with his finger because they were trying to trap him. And so as he's writing in the in this dirt with his finger, he says, okay, he who is without sin cast the first stone. That's how he responds to them. So scripture tells us, after he tells them that, he gets back down, he starts writing in the sand again. And as he hears thuds of rocks dropping one at a time, it says, from the oldest to the youngest, they start leaving one at a time. And when everybody is gone, Jesus stands back up and goes over to the woman and says to her, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she says. And Jesus says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Now, can you imagine if somebody from the church came and took one of you guys out and brought you up here and said, we're gonna talk about this person's sin. We're gonna talk about their deep, darkest dirty right here. And so we as human beings want to rate sins but everybody has, a, everybody has something that they're not proud of, right? Can you imagine that being exposed before everybody and then saying, how should we deal with this? How would that feel? Now, Jesus was the only one in that crowd who had the right to throw the stone because he was without sin. And he chose not to. Where are those who condemn you? Where are your accusers? Has anybody uh, condemned you? Neither do I. Isn't that amazing? I don't know if that shows you that Jesus, his mercy triumphs over judgment. It's beautiful. So I ask you, are there areas of your life where you have made assumptions about God not caring about you? Where have you chosen to believe your thoughts and feelings rather than the the truth about what scripture teaches us about how much Jesus cares about you? Will you choose today to respond to that instead of assumptions that you may have made? So if you have been wondering about God and today have decided, you know what, I've been thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it, but today is the day that I I am convinced God really does care about me. Jesus really did come to die for my sins. Today is the day of salvation. Scripture says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And so I just want everybody to bow your heads, close your eyes. And so what I just described now, if that is you, I wanna encourage you to pray this prayer with me. Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you are the son of God, that you are the savior of the world. I recognize that I am a sinner in need of a savior. And so I ask you, Lord, to come to forgive my sins. I believe that you died, that you were buried, that you rose from the grave, and that you are coming again. Please come and live in my heart. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So just keeping your head bowed and your eyes closed, if anyone prayed that prayer for the first time, would you raise your hand? All right, I see that hand. Welcome to the family of God. Wonderful. All right. Now, if there is anyone here who also wants to pray to rededicate their lives and just their thoughts are, you know what? I had forgotten about how much God cares about me. I had forgotten about just how crazy mad Jesus is about me. Then let's pray and, and rededicate our lives. So if, if that is you, this is how we're going to pray. Lord Jesus, we just come before you and we thank you for your great love and care for us. I rededicate my life to you and ask you to help me to live a life that honors you and to be able to tell others about your great love for them and your care for them as well. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. If any of you guys prayed that prayer, raise your hand. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. All right. That is wonderful. This is great news. God loves us so much. He cares about us so much. Would you stand with us as we sing our closing song?